Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We're talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better or for the worse, or still to be determined, as we move out of shutdown. We want to give special thanks to Groundbreaker member Cheryl Mather for her financial support of this podcast series. If you like what you hear, please help us by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. This pandemic has created a major upheaval in the entertainment industry. Theaters, cinemas, and concert halls were shuttered for at least a year, and television and film production were halted for months, which meant hundreds of thousands of layoffs and large sums of money lost in Los Angeles, the global hub of entertainment. It hasn't been all bad, at least for us stuck-at-home consumers. We're now used to streaming movies and TV shows whenever we want through platforms like Netflix and Disney+. And we're finding new types of entertainment and celebrities in places like YouTube, Twitch, and TikTok. The way we consume entertainment is changing the way entertainment is made and distributed. For example, how summer blockbuster movies like The Black Widow are released in movie theaters and on streaming TV the same day. It's changes like that which prompt the question, what does the future hold for movie theaters, streaming services, film and TV studios, and the people who work for all of them when this pandemic ends? Join us as we talk with two experts in the areas of entertainment and pop culture who teach those subjects as professors at USC, Gene Del Vecchio and Henry Jenkins. They'll tell us what types of things we'll be watching in the future, how we'll be watching them, and what this all means for one of California's biggest economic engines, the entertainment industry. Hi everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers and thank you for tuning in today for our final episode of This Changes Everything, which is all about a California industry that's ever-changing and that's entertainment. So one of my favorite classic Hollywood movies is one that's all about Hollywood and it has one of the best quotes about Hollywood too. That's Sunset Boulevard, a 1950 film directed by the great Billy Wilder and it stars Gloria Swanson, an actress who rose to fame during the silent film era of the 1920s. And in the film, Swanson plays a famous actress from the silent film era too, named Norma Desmond. And while Gloria is in many ways like her character Norma, she certainly wasn't as crazy. Hopefully that's not a spoiler for those of you who haven't seen the movie yet. But regarding the Hollywood quote, when it, it comes when a man realizes who Norma Desmond is and says to her, you used to be in silent pictures, you used to be big. And to that, Norma replies, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. And I feel like Norma's quote totally applies to the entertainment industry right now. It does seem like the pictures are getting small. Instead of watching them in movie theaters, we're watching them advertisement free while lying on our sofa, pulling them up on our laptops and iPads, and even watching them on our phone. And while it's great to have any movie or TV show we wanna watch anytime at our fingertips, it is certainly wreaking a lot of havoc in Los Angeles among the people who run the studios, the movie stars, and all the people in the entertainment industry who work on movies and TV shows, from writing them to catering food on their sets. So 
What is the future of entertainment and what does it hold when the pandemic ends for movie theaters, streaming services, film studios, cable networks, those caterers on set, and for viewers like you and me? I'm going to ask those questions to two people who have spent much of their lives devoted to the entertainment business by working in it, researching it, writing about it, and teaching the workings of it to young people who aspire to careers in it. They are both currently professors at the University of Southern California, which we know is USC for short, and it's a school that's very connected to Los Angeles and its entertainment industry, with many famous filmmaking alumni like California natives George Lucas, John Singleton, Ron Howard, and Regina King. So I thought it would be great to talk to two people who teach at that school, one who looks at the entertainment industry from a business point of view, and one who may look at it more from a cultural and society-specific point of view. And let's see how their views contrast and compare with each other. So let me welcome first Gene Del Vecchio. He is an adjunct professor of marketing at USC's Marshall School of Business, and he lectures on consumer behavior, youth marketing, and entertainment. And Gene has conducted roughly a thousand research studies as a marketing consultant for industry heavyweights in the film, TV, toy, and technology industries. And he's also written business books too, the latest being Creating Blockbusters. So welcome, Gene. Thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Vanessa. And also we have Henry Jenkins. He is Provost Professor of Communications, Journalism, Cinematic Arts, and Education at USC. And Henry writes extensively about cinema, TV, comics, computer games, online communities, and other types of popular media. He's also written a lot of books, edited a lot of books, I think nearly 20 or more, about media and popular culture. And the latest one that he wrote and published last year is called Comics and Stuff. And Henry also co-hosts a podcast called How Do You Like It So Far, which looks at how pop culture converges with civic engagement and social and political change. Welcome to you, Henry, too. Happy to be here. So I'm very excited to talk to you both because I'm, I guess, like many people, uh, I watch a lot of TV, a lot, I watch a lot of movies, and I live in California, so I feel like I, I see a lot of uh, things literally being filmed here. Um, so I wanted to start off with a personal take for you. Um, on entertainment and how the pandemic has changed the way you view or see entertainment literally. What's the main change or one big change you personally experienced in this past year and a half of pandemic when it comes to your consumption of entertainment? And I'm going to start with you, Gene. Okay, I'll, I'll take it away. I think that all of us have been under sort of the same conditions in the last so many years. What the pandemic did was to destroy anything, any kind of entertainment where crowds would form. So whether it was a crowded theater, a crowded stadium, a crowded concert hall, a crowded restaurant, anywhere where we were, where the crowds were, where we were energized by the crowd uh, fell away. And I was part of that as everybody else was too. And then the antithesis of that is that anything, any entertainment, any activity, which could be home-centered, because that's where we were, suddenly exploded. So streaming exploded for me, uh, even more so than it was before. Video games exploded. Uh, the Amazon delivery guy practically lived uh, in our homes. So everything that was home-centered, home businesses, um, home affiliations, that exploded. So that was true for me. It was true, I think, for everyone else. And one of the things that I've written quite a bit about is that what we are seeing today, what we are living through, is simply an acceleration of the trends that were already in place. Uh, my guesstimate is that we are probably living now in a world that would have looked this way in five years. 
because a lot of the things were already in play. We, we already had a situation where people were streaming more and you could see the charts going higher and higher and higher uh, in terms of streaming. Uh, we're in a world in which domestically in the US, the number of theater tickets being sold was going down. The number of theater tickets per person was going down. Uh, we have already lived in a world in which the window was being reduced between when a movie is in the theater versus when it actually shows up in home. So a lot of things were already in play, but we've fast forwarded. We basically fast forwarded as an individual and as a community into the future for about five years. Henry, yeah, Henry, what's your take? Well, I, mean, I think I, I write a lot about the intersection of mass media and grassroots media. Uh, everything from social media, influencer culture, fan cultures, so forth. So if I look back at the last year, if we had a thought experiment and we said, we're going to black out one of the major mass medias, cinema, for the better part of a year, we're going to slow down production for the other major one, television, for the better part of a year, open up a space for new platforms to come in and create a space where the technical barrier between mass media and grassroots media is completely blurred, where, where TV producers are making shows out of their living room and fans are using higher grade equipment than ever before to transmit their content to each other. Throw into that Zoom uh, technology, which is basically the picture phone that we had been predicting for decades is suddenly there. We would see a scrambling of the deck. And I agree that it's largely trends we are already seeing that have just been accelerated over the last year and a half. But I would want to hold on to the idea that grassroots media producers gained ground they might not have gained otherwise as a result of the weakening of uh, the mass media producers during the same time period. So think about the, what content you've watched on YouTube. If you've got young people in your house, what's going on with Twitch and these other platforms? I think, think about what's happening with podcasting. All of those are more ground, closer to the ground media that have really taken off and played some significant roles in the last year. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm doing this podcast. Uh, we're talking on Zoom. And I actually uh, have learned how to use Twitch. So it does feel like um, all these terms, I, I never would have done this before the pandemic, I think. All right, movie theaters. I haven't been to one since before the pandemic. And I'm wondering, will they make it? How will they adapt? What do you what do you see for movie theaters? Just let's start there. Um, I the movie theaters have, a, as we know, have had a very tough go of it because everything closed down. And they're trying to get back to where they were in 2019. I think that's going to be problematic for them because what's fundamentally happened is that the business model for the studios has changed. The business model used to be, as we know, you sell a ticket, 90 days later, you know, the entertainment comes in home. Uh, more time after that, it's going to be on paid television. After that, it's going to be on free television. So there was these windows and the studio got money from the windows. What's happened, however, is that the moment that these studios started to develop their own company-owned streaming services, the business model changed. Instead of making money from selling a ticket as a prime driver for all the other windows, it became let's sell a subscription. 
let's get people to buy. And you look at the Walt Disney Company, let's get people to buy a subscription for $7.99 a month and keep them for a lifetime. So it's no longer about selling a ticket. It's about selling a, a subscription. That, that's what became. So as soon as that happened, theaters were in more trouble because as we've just seen, studios can now circumvent the theater process. Uh, they could decide, uh, I want to give a perk to my subscribers, so I'm going to send them Soul, which the Walt Disney uh, Company did. Or I'm going to send them Hamilton, which they did. Or they can say, I'm going to circumvent the theaters and do a premium video on demand like they did with um, Mulan. So that was like $29.99. Or they could say, let's do it simultaneously, like they did with uh, Black Widow. And as you know, there's all kind of controversy there. But in every scenario, in every single scenario, the theater loses. Because they're going to be chipped away in terms of consumer decisions that suddenly decide, I don't need to see it in a theater. I'll just wait. I'm just going to wait 17 days or 31 days and somebody else is doing 45 days. I'll just wait and I'll get it in home. So in a very interesting way, it's going to be theaters are going to have a difficult time getting back to the good old days of 2019. So what we're going to see, because the model has changed, um, we're going to see more streaming. Uh, we're going to see theaters that are probably going to contract. Some may go out of business. There may be fewer screens. And what we've already seen already is that the more casual theater goer has, continues to fall away. And we're going to end up with a group of people that love to go into the theater, which, by the way, I'm one of them. But we're going to be a smaller and smaller group over time. And that's going to be something that the theater owners are wrestling with now. And they, they see, because of what the studios are doing, that it's going to be more difficult in the future. So I would say for all the reasons you just described, the interesting pattern I see emerging is that smaller independent cinemas may be ones that are more likely to survive than massive movie chains. In that they're already appealing to fans like you and I who like to go to the theaters to begin with. They have stronger ties to that community. They can cater to local taste without being governed by national decisions about which films to show. They are creating events around films that draw people in or create festivals, retrospectives. All of that, I think, is likely to give competitive edge. The analogy I'd make is to Amazon coming in, disrupting the bookstore structure and closing out borders and mortally wounding Barnes and Nobles, whereas despite predictions, independent bookstores struggle to survive but are hanging in there at a better rate than chain bookstores have in the face of that digital competition. So I would argue that the future of cinema is going to be the new Beverly and El Capitan, which is of course owned by Disney, but it follows the pattern. Otherwise, these smaller cinemas are going to be the places that will have the most legs as cinemas start to shut down. Otherwise, yes, we had far too many screens in play. The multiplex culture was bound to collapse sooner or later. And we're simply seeing an acceleration of that going back to your initial point, Gene. You know, one, one of the comments that I make to my students, and I get a lot of, you know, sometimes blank stares and sometimes aha moments, is when I say that Netflix should never exist. Um, and I say that because the, the theater chains themselves should have redefined their business many years ago. 
instead of saying we are the conveyor of a movie in a theater, they should have done what Netflix did. Netflix, as you know, um, used to send DVDs in the mail. And then they said, wait a minute, that's, that business is going away. We, we should stream. So it was only in 2007 that they started streaming. And I think Amazon Prime was one year before that. But when you think about it in that context, you, you have to say to yourself, the major theater chains had decades, decades of a head run against theaters where they could have done something like this. Instead, they let Netflix do it because they define their business. And I'm talking about theaters. They define their business as a movie in a theater. They didn't define it as distribution of content. And then Netflix did a, a most brilliant thing was to say, well, instead of being uh, conveying other people's content, let's create our own content. Just brilliant move after brilliant move after brilliant move. I think theaters are in a place of their own making that had they defined their business differently, they would be leading the charge of the streaming revolution instead of trying to fight it, which is what they've been doing. And if you recall several years ago, uh, theaters went as far as boycotting Netflix because Netflix wanted to run movies in the theater at the same time it was going to be on the streaming service. And instead of joining a revolution of streaming, they fought it and fought it and fought it. So what we see now is sort of, um, you know, what's the, the term, the, the roosters that come to roost, whatever it is. Um, what we see is a situation where the theaters could have, if they had a better vision, be leading the charge, but they're not. I have a question about that, that because I, I remember just being a kid and going to the theaters. I mean, obviously, Star Wars I saw in a theater. I remember that. And Lord of the Rings I saw in the theater. So, like, these – they were just experiences. And uh, when theater's going away, I'm wondering – I guess I have a two-part question. How do we see movies? Because it felt like movies were something you would see in a theater and then streaming just – you were, I'm seeing it on a smaller screen. I have a, I personally have a different view of that based on what I see on a big screen. And then does that change what uh, the film studios create uh, for the theaters? It's going to be, you know, more like the Avengers with surround sound and special effects for the theaters or, or less of it because people aren't going to the theaters. Like how will the, how will people's perception of what a, movie and how you see it change and part two is how will film theaters view what kind of content they create because this based on the size of the screen people watch it on well i think it's for a long time we've been seeing that the movies that draw people out are events those those events are spectacles that we can't experience on the screen even given the kind of weird paradox we're at where the screen at home is getting bigger the screen in the theater for a long time was getting smaller. And now we're at the third stage of that, whereas the seating in the theater is closer to the seating we have at home. There's a kind of weird blurring of the boundaries between those things. But I think the event is going to be it. I think that that in part is about IMAX and larger screens and better sound systems. But beyond that, I think it's also theatricality. Right. If you look at the secret cinema events that have been experimented with in cities across the world, where you have a the immersive theatrical experience that involves distinctive food and so forth, that's a space where traditional theaters may do with the bigger screen the better, 
may do better than these multiplexes that are dividing into smaller and smaller pieces and creating that. I think there's also going to be a rise of niche cinemas. Uh, the cinemas that open for a week do really well nationwide and move beyond, whether it's Bollywood films in some cities or Chinese films in some cities that are four-walling the multiplexes and taking advantage of that, whether it's live events like the theatrical and opera performances that we're seeing, those become events. And minority cinemas, cinemas for African-Americans or Asian-Americans, where there's a strong incentive to get out and support your filmmakers will thrive in this setting. What's gonna drop away are rom-coms and other things that are basically casual movie experiences and the kinds of films that do just as well as television experiences, as theatrical experiences. I agree with everything Henry said. I would add that the dynamics we see are being driven by what the consumer wants. We sometimes think of you know, what Disney is doing or what a theater is doing, but it's all being driven by what the consumer wants. And what's happening now is consumers are saying, um, is this movie theater worthy, right? Is it worth going to the theater for this movie? And to Henry's point, it tends to be the big, the spectacle, the one with the sounds and the explosions. You say, okay, for you know, F9, Fast and Furious, not yes, that's theater worthy. And by the way, I've gone to the theater probably at least a half a dozen times in the last year, easily, uh, many times in the Al Capitan. But I, I always make those decisions. Is it theater worthy? And what's driving that, what's beneath that, is consumers are saying, well, wait a minute, you know, if I wait a month or even less than a month, maybe I can just get it streamed for cheap. So consumers are making this decision that says, okay, I can go see, let's use Black Widow because it's in the news so much. I can go see Black Widow in a theater, right? I'm going to bring my family and there's four of us. Four of us, $10 on average across the, that's $40, food, beverages. I'm going to get out of there with 80 bucks. Or wait a minute, I, why don't I just stream it for $29.99 with the family, I'll make my own popcorn. So what's happening is that consumers are driving this because they're saying, um, is this particular film going to be worthy? Now, to, to Henry's point, th there's an interesting stat where the top 20 films in the United States, if you look at 2019, the top 20 films in the United States were almost 50% of the entire box office for the United States. So if you're a theater owner, you say to yourself, uh-oh, because if it's the event films that are gonna end up being in a theater and all the other films, which by the way are hundreds, they're, they're like eight to 900 films that end up in a theater. If those are the ones that 50% of the market that end up circumventing the theater because now they're streaming worthy, it's not worth it to go to a theater, but they're streaming worthy, theaters are even in more trouble all driven by consumers making a decision, is it theater worthy or not? So you mentioned Black Widow and that ties perfectly into a question I had about movie stars and, and what are they? Who are they? <laughs> like, where is their relevance these days? Um, because it does seem like, a, you know, when I see uh, these movies, like uh, I think the uh, one with Chris Pratt, um, for example, I forget the name of it, but I see it on Amazon as uh, advertised, and I just think, yeah, it's it's he's he's on my TV screen. He's not on a big screen. What does that mean? Is he still a movie star? Um, 
as these pictures now go straight to to our you know TV screens. And I I mentioned uh, Black Widow because. Uh, yesterday, um, which is July, I guess we're, we're, this is the end of the week. We're taping this on Friday, July 30th, I believe. So yesterday it, it was announced Scarlett Johansson, who's the star of the Black Widow, is suing the makers of the film, Disney, um, that owns Marvel Entertainment, uh, because there she's, dis- she is, and I guess her team are uh, suing because they did not want the movie to be streamed simultaneously with a theatrical release. It, it should have been just put in the theater and not also released on Disney+. And because of that, uh, uh, Scarlett's uh, team is saying that she lost about $50, 50 million in potential revenue um, because of the box office loss uh people could have gone to the theaters instead of just watching it at home and so she lost revenue because of that disney's saying um we paid her up front i guess 20 million or so and um uh all these other things so it sounds like a conflict but it does sound like maybe this is the first of uh a trend where uh movie stars who are upset with how movie theaters are saying we're going to stream simultaneously and they're calling the shots um the actors who are saying, hey, you know, I'm, I helped make this movie too. My name is up there. Um, what is it, what that, what is, what do you think this lawsuit that Scarlett Johansson is bringing against Disney says about the role of, uh, you know, big name actors and what, I guess, you know, not only how much money they'll make, but how much relevance they'll have when it comes to making a movie, I guess, you know, are they going to be as, are they going to be as, um, desirable and in demand like they were, uh, you know, like say in the nineties or before when we went to the movies to see, you know, movie stars, uh, in many, in in many parts, not just blockbusters. Do you want to start Henry or do you want me to? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in right away. And then you'll be able to give the industry perspective better than I can. But I would say that no one has broken down the line between film and television more in the last five years than the film stars themselves, right? If you look at the Emmy nominations, you see two things. One is that how many film stars have crossed over and have begun to appear on television, have produced their vanity projects through television, have taken advantage of the streaming services to build the base for that kind of work. And the second is that we still value film stars over TV stars because they often trump and you know, local television personalities because the celebrity of film is still that much bigger. So I think the moment, if this was ever going to happen, it's way too late for that, that their value as a film star today is blur- further blurring the lines on the direction they've been going and continuing to engage with streaming, not to try, the, try to draw the line on streaming. I think stars still matter but I don't think they matter nearly as much as they historically did. And I don't think they have the clout to stop the larger industry trends that Scarlett Johansson set herself against. It used to be many, many years ago, uh, the studios would hire a particular actor, actors for film because they were said to, and this is the quote, they can open a, that was the term that was always used. They, They can, this is like 20, 30 years. They can open a film knowing if you just have the star name, the quality, you're going to get people butts in those theater seats for that first weekend. What happened in the later part of the 90s, the early 2000s, that suddenly there were some big disasters. And in, in one particular case, and I'll just you know pull his name out of a hat, but Johnny Depp. 
you know, you thought Johnny Depp in a film, he'll open the film. And, and there were a number of cases where, you know, you put him in a funny hat that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be able to open that film. So the whole notion that an actor can actually be responsible for bringing a lot of um, butts and seats no longer applied. What became even more important, even though it was always important, was story. Do you have the right story? Because consumers were burned by stars that were in unfortunate stories. So I, I agree with Henry in terms of the, there used to be a, this wonderful star quality, but it sort of dissipated. And I also agree that there is now a legitimacy to television. It, it used to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago, no actor, actress, you know, in the right mind would want to do something for TV because it was considered downgrading. But then came HBO. And HBO had the wonderful storytelling, wonderful actors, and all of a sudden it became a thing to do. So I wouldn't call them movie stars anymore. I would call them celebrities. And these celebrities still have clout um, in certain respects. And in fact, you can tell that by the very fact that she got like $20 million up front, you know, Scarlett Johansson. And there, there's still a back-end deal somewhere that Disney was talking about in terms of, you know, what streaming might provide. Now, let, that was the celebrity part. Let me talk about the, the business part. What we see now is that the industry is being rocked because it's in a transition. She's working off an old contract. Disney's working off a new reality. The old contract said, hey, you know, I want to get box office, either front end or back end, and it's going to be a big payday for me. That contract, well, I'm sure, was written at a time when no one thought the pandemic was going to hit. No one thought that the, the movie was going to be streamed at the same time it was going to be, you know, in, in theaters. What needs to happen after this nasty transition period is out of the way is that the new con generation of contracts have to catch up with where this industry is going, which means more streaming, less theatrical solo, right? When that happens, things will be resolved. But what the actors are going to be looking for is a way to ensure that the new contracts help compensate them for what they were making under the old contracts and the old theater first window system. That's what has to happen. And it hasn't happened yet. What surprises me about this whole thing, though, is it was made public. See, usually what will happen is that, and I'm sure it probably did, is that, you know, Scarlet's people went to Disney and Disney said no. But usually you'll meet in the middle somewhere before something becomes public. Well, clearly that meeting didn't happen in terms of reaching resolution and it became public. I think that's troublesome because I think every actor now, think of HBO Max, that every movie in 2021 was day and date. It was in the theater at the same time that it ended up on HBO Max. I think every director, every actor is now going to be looking with intensity as whether or not Scarlett Johansson gets what she believes is due to her. Uh, it's going to be a rocky transition period until new contracts are in line with the new reality of what's happening in the marketplace. You had mentioned, you know, stories and important, and uh, that ties into my next question about, you know, content, especially on streaming uh, there's such a variety now of, of shows that we can all watch. And I, and I, 
uh, obviously there's there's big hits. You know when it's a hit, like Bridgerton, which was created by Shonda Rhimes' teams. Right? She's she was at ABC and she created big blockbusters for them. Obviously, Grey's Anatomy and um, Scandal, and I'm sure she got a lot of money. Uh, and then she came up with Bridgerton, and I'm sure she'll renewal contract renewal. She'll get even more. So it seems like yeah, that's someone who's you know gonna get paid a lot. Uh, for production of, of, of shows. Um, and then I'm wondering, you know, also I see a lot of shows from overseas like Lupin and uh, Money Heist, you know, from uh, from France and Spain, respectively, uh, Bollywood. Um, uh, I see a lot of movies now that I can choose from. So I was wondering, you know, the content on streaming channels, uh, again, this is a part two question, a two part question. You know, what do you, what do you think about the, the content that we have that's available? I mean, I guess it feels like there's so much choice, uh, and it's quality. It will that, you know, will that quality still be there when there's so much of it coming in? And then, um, what happens with the other places where the content typically used to go, or I guess it still goes to, but uh, you know, ABC and NBC, the traditional network shows and traditional cable, right? Like AMC and Bravo, like what's going to happen to them if everyone's looking instinctively to like Netflix and Amazon and Apple, what, what's the, um, what's, what's street, what's going to happen with streaming and how does that affect uh, cable and traditional networks? Well, we could probably get multiple hours out of what's happening in streaming right now, because that is the site that we're paying attention to. I mean, several things I think broke through this past year on streaming. One was that hot American television's advantage globally has always been its higher production values. So as our production values game went down and Netflix and other streamers are putting more money in co-productions globally, that gap, I think, we crossed that gap in this last year or so. And the success of Lupin, for example, illustrates that people are willing to follow genre, are willing to follow quality beyond the American setting. For a long time, we've had access to international television on Netflix and these other streamers. That itself is a breakthrough because the protectionism of Hollywood meant for a long time we didn't have access to that international TV content at all. We now do. This is the year where we started to see some of those hits compete directly and aggressively alongside the biggest American television hits of the last, the last year. And I think that has some real ramifications for the future. We will see more international television successes on American television. We will also see niche successes, both tied to ethnicity uh, Netflix made an early investment in Bollywood, going back to when they were sending movies by mail. They recognized that community, the Indian diaspora in the U.S., was large enough to support a chunk of their business. And they've held that through this and now have broadened it through what I call pop cosmopolitanism, where young people are seeking out cultural differences through other popular cinemas, whether it's Bollywood or anime or K-pop or telenovelas, all of that's going to feed into that. So that's one important part of the streaming puzzle. Uh, we can go on, but I'll, I'll hand it over to Gene, and maybe I'll pick up some more stuff after Gene talks. Uh, Vanessa, your question was a good one, and there are multiple layers to it, and so there's a, there's a bit to unpack. So let me try it with one aspect of it. And it has to do with you know cable going down, uh, people pulling the plug, not picking up cable. 
It has to do with um, students in my class, for example, the last three years when I've asked the students, raise your hand if you're going to sign up for cable when you graduate. Not one person, not one student in the last three years has said yes. So what's happening inside companies is that there's this dramatic shift of resources. Companies, massive studios are saying, we're going to take money, we're going to take resources out of the legacy businesses, out of the networks out of the cables, and we're going to be put them into streaming. And just so you understand what this looks like on a, uh, an income statement, if you look at the Walt Disney Company income statements, 2019 to 2020, what you discover is that in one year, in one year where Disney Plus provided a great thrust for the company, the revenue for their direct-to-consumer business outpaced the revenue for the studio division that had been you know, in existence for, for what, 50, 60 decades, right? In one year. That tells you where the resources and the people are going, away from the legacy businesses, <clears throat> excuse me, and toward the streaming services. And what the massive you know, companies are trying to do is to handle that transition. How do we live in this world where business is going down in places where we were making a tremendous amount of money and at the same time increasing the revenue and profits in the streaming world where we have yet to make a profit. So there's this balancing and transition that's happening that's extremely important within the studio environment. And to the other part of your question, I'll just add a couple of things. What we see now is that there is going to be a local production boom and it's happening right now. Netflix is following Amazon. We're going to see Disney Plus doing it soon, where it's going to be production of movies, production of TV shows in country. So instead of developing things for the United States and saying, let's you know, transport it around the world, they're saying to themselves, no, 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 no. We, we have to start making local um, series that are very sensitive to the local market needs. And as a result, we get this boomerang effect. You know, you end up with these things that have done very well in other parts of the country and the world, and suddenly Americans are suddenly desiring and accepting of reading, you know, the, the subtitles, which we've never done before. You look at Parasite, and you mentioned, I think, Money Heist from Spain. I mean, it's really amazing. So we're really becoming this global entertainment world in a way we've never before had. And it's important these days because, again, let's just looking at the box office as a measure, 30, 40 years ago, 30% of the box office worldwide was coming from international. 70% was coming from the U.S., completely flipped now. 70% is coming from uh, foreign markets. 30% is coming domestically. We live in a different world, but story is still king. And the more you develop a story that connects with universal themes that all people share, the more likely that you're going to have a piece of content that can transport across country lines. Hi everyone, it's Vanessa again. I just want to say thank you for tuning in for this final episode of This Changes Everything. A special thanks to those who have made it all this way through 20 episodes. But if this is the first one of these you've tuned into, thanks for doing so. And I would just say, check out some other episodes because we may have covered a topic or a person worth listening to. I personally enjoy doing all these episodes because I love learning about what's going on in California and talking to these amazing people who are leading the way forward in the state. 
from the 18-year-old climate change activist who challenged our senior senator, Diane Feinstein, on the topic, to the Betty English Museum director, who used to run the Met in New York City and is now determined to turn San Francisco's fine arts museums into anti-racist institutions. I started California Groundbreakers five years ago as a civic engagement organization. And with my journalism background, I thought it could be a new type of way to deliver relevant news and information so we could all learn what's going on in the Golden State, figure out how the twists, turns, and trends happening here will change our lives, and hopefully get more informed, inspired, and involved to make our own changes for the better in the place we live in. That started with live events and these podcasts, but as the pandemic changed a lot of things, it changed the plans I have for California Groundbreakers and probably its business model too. So I'm kind of at a crossroads right now and a holding pattern too, as COVID-19 just can't seem to quit us. When will it be a good time to do live events or will it ever be? Are California specific podcasts something people want to listen to? I have an idea for a new podcast series about people who are doing groundbreaking stuff to bridge the various gaps of inequity and inequality happening here. Is that worth funding? I had started a weekly newsletter earlier this year doing a wrap up of news about what's going on around California and I've gotten some good feedback. Is that worth continuing? As I finish up this podcast series, looking at life in post-pandemic California, I'm not sure what that looks like for me yet. Thus, I'm calling out to you, podcast listeners and Groundbreaker supporters. What do you want to know about California? And how do you want to know about it? Will you turn out to live events, tune into podcasts, subscribe to a weekly newsletter? Are there some other methods, suggestions, or general advice you'd give to me? Let me know what you think the future of California Groundbreakers should be, or even if it has one. Because as per the singer Neil Young, who, random trivia fact, used to be my neighbor when he lived on a ranch near Half Moon Bay, it's sometimes better to burn out than to fade away. So, while I'm not specifically asking for money here, I am asking for your input. What's the future of California Groundbreakers, and how should I go about fulfilling it? Send any comments, critiques, questions, opinions, and why not, more podcast creation donations to me at my direct email address, Vanessa at CaliforniaGroundbreakers.org. Again, that's Vanessa at CaliforniaGroundbreakers.org. And now, on with the show. Okay, I have a question now about, um, I guess, demographics and uh the the youth generation because i guess in entertainment it does seem like youth shapes a lot of uh how entertainment is consumed and then how it's produced so uh i guess right now we're on uh we're looking at gen z as the big uh uh, audience market millennials too i'm gen x so i've kind of i guess i've uh, aged out but i was obviously there's tiktok right and twitch youtube i feel people will watch a lot of their uh uh, stuff on YouTube. There's the creator economy. Uh, that's a buzzword I hear a lot now. So I was wondering how the way, how is, how is Gen Z shaping Hollywood now in terms of how they look at entertainment and watch it literally? How is that, um, uh, going up to the, uh, executives to make the decisions about, uh, what entertainment is made? Well, I said that over the last year and a half that there's been a dimming of the power of mass media and a growth of participatory content. And I think this is where Gen Z is really on top of those trends. For a long time now, when my students describe the stars that matter to them most, they're naming people I've never heard of. They're stars who do video blogs on beauty products. They do music, gaming platforms. But the last year, we saw some real, real important breakthroughs. 
that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez before the election had a rally on Twitch that attracted more young people and more people in general than ever went to a Trump rally in a stadium, right? That's a significant shift in terms of the scale and scope of those platforms. This is what my colleague in Annenberg, David Craig, calls social media entertainment. I was struck, I was living with my son this past year who is a big ASMR fan, uh, which is a kind of subculture that's interested in sound and intimacy through video. And uh, basically what I watched over the last year was people rally their communities together, give self-care and community support through the streaming, live streaming platforms, uh, developing a kind of celebrity, but more than that, a sense of community resource that helped people through the pandemic. And those ties are very, very strong and will persist. That's simply one niche, one subcultural use of these platforms. The challenge for Hollywood to respond to any of this is this is so fragmented, so particular to particular subsets of the population that it's never going to translate into mass culture successes. I mean, I've seen the ASMR phenomenon to continue with that tip into some things. Disney Channel has uh, an animated, as a series of segments of their animated films and kind of new wagey music that I think is intended to address that particular community as kind of a Zen programming, they're calling it. I haven't seen any numbers to know what's going, how successful that's been, but it's an attempt to try to target some of these niches and bring those to, you know, capitalize on those successes. But I don't know that this is something that they can capitalize on to the same degree of earlier youth trends because it is so much about participation. It's so much about organic leaders emerging from communities. It's about connections within communities. None are the kinds of things that Hollywood or television networks do particularly well. Um, I, I would add that if you look at not just the last couple of years, because it's always hard to see a trend when you look at the last couple of years, um, it's very easy to see it when you look over decades, because then you can get a better picture of, of what things look like today and why they look the way they look. So if you go back 30, 40 years ago, um, all consumers, every one of us, were trained. We were trained that you watch ABC at a appointment television on Tuesday for at eight o'clock for a particular show, right? And that was the only way you could consume it. We were trained because of the nature of the technology. It was all about scheduling. You know, and next week you have to wait. You have to wait a week for the next episode. So if you look at that context and you say, well, what's happening today in Gen Z? Gen Z now is living in a world where the technology and streaming allows them to see what they want, when they want, where they want, at a price they want. It's complete flexibility. So they are driving the, the marketplace because technology allows them to drive the marketplace. So the winners in this world, whether you're on a studio side or we talked about celebrity and stars and all those kinds of things, and we didn't talk about Quibi, if you want to talk about Quibi. Um, but it, we're living in a world now where Gen Z gets to decide where they want to spend their next five minutes, their next half an hour, because they can. So the studios, the content developers that develop the right program, the right story, 
and the technology that allows the, the younger generation to see again what they want, when they want, where they want, and the price they want, those would be the winners of the future. And they may be different winners than the, the winners of the entertainment past. Yeah, they, 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 they probably will be unless the winners of the entertainment past adapt to this new world, which is why, again, you look at theaters, not really adapted. They fought this new world, not adapted to it, whereas the, the, the streaming services of the world and the st- legacy studios that have decided you know, quickly enough, I guess we need HBO Max. I guess we need Peacock. You know, they're, they're trying to adapt this world as fast as possible because they know that consumers are driving it. And if they can provide what consumers want, you know, they'll succeed. All right. So I have three more questions for you. Uh, one is uh, about another, well, actually a few things have been happening uh, because of the pandemic. And even before, I think when uh, Trump, President Trump was in office, uh, there was the Me Too movement and there was a uh, a spotlight shown on um uh, equity and gender equity, uh, and where is that in the entertainment uh, industry? Then there's um, obviously the the murder of George Floyd just brought up a whole bunch of discussion on um, uh, racial justice, right, and, and uh, diversity. Where is that in the entertainment industry? Uh, there's a, a movement that I saw called Pay Up Hollywood about, you know, where's the uh, financial equity for, you know, people who are just overworked and underpaid. And then uh, there's people like uh, the producer, Scott Rudin, who is very well known, but also is very well known for having a really bad temper and and not treating employees well. And there was a backlash against him. So, uh, and then cancel culture, right? Uh, um, Where there's just... uh, uh, I guess people, the general public can just take a stance on an entertainer or some something that uh, that person has said, and that could just change whether the, the, the show he or she is on stays on or what have you. So it just seems like there's these issues that Hollywood uh, has had to deal with for even before the pandemic, but especially now, you know, diversity and uh, treating people fairly Um and being mindful of social issues, maybe in a way that they had not been doing. What is, how is all this impacting uh, Hollywood and, and again, how they, how they make decisions? And is there, do you see any um, uh, relevant change in terms of diversity, in terms of equity, in terms of equality? I know a very big, very big topic. Henry, Henry, you want to take that? Do you want me to jump in? Uh, I'll, I, either way, um, I'll, I'll start and you can, Follow okay. on, I guess. Right, um, so, so yeah, I'm the, the angle that I come at this most re- most recently has been the narrative change movement, and there are large numbers of advocacy groups around the U.S. that are not simply responding to negative representations, but are trying to exert greater power over the decision making of what stories are being produced and how stories are being told. So one example of this that I followed closely, and we've had some guests on our podcast talking about it, is a group called Illuminative. And Illuminative is indigenous peoples uh, of the United States who point out that their stories are not being told in schools and not being told through mass media, with the result that something like a quarter of Americans believe Native Americans no longer exist, that they went extinct in the 19th century. So this has got to be the most invisible population in the U.S. in terms of racial groups. 
In the last year or so, we have seen uh, Rutherford Falls through Peacock, which now has a writer's room that's roughly 50% Native American. We've seen Molly of Denali, which is a successful PBS children's show that has a writer's room 100% Native American and has built a program for training writers who are Native American to enter the industry. If we look at someone like Stacy Smith here at USC, who has mapped these num the large scale numbers over time in terms of diversity, those numbers were flat despite some high visibility products. It was not in fact an increase behind or in front of the camera for an extended period of time. She's now reporting some movement in that direction in part because of all the factors we've looked at and the success, commercial success of films like Black Panther, Crazy Rich Asians, we could down on the list are opening doors and we're in seeing in television, for example, Lovecraft Country and uh, you know any number of other shows in the past year which have represented real breakthroughs in terms of authorship and in terms of casting that affect Native Americans. So all of those things are working together to right now to create churn. And it's happening in part because the industry has to hold on to the audiences it's got and has to expand them, I think, given the precariousness of the rest of the situation we've described, that there is a need to respond to these crises in a way that they could ride over them and what other options did we have. Now, the competitive advantage is going to be those groups that can tell diverse stories, these groups that will include female-centered stories as well as these other things. And I think that's an important part of what's happening right now. Uh, I'll add that it, it's wonderful these days that social issues and diversity issues come to the forefront. Uh, because for so many years, in a lot of different industries, and certainly the entertainment industry has been one of them, where things were hidden under a rock. You never saw them. People were afraid to speak out. Uh, now, uh, there's a signal that's being sent that bad behavior, bad decisions aren't being tolerated. That's a good thing. People are more willing to speak up. As I said, that's a really good thing because now you feel protected by the crowd, whereas before you would not feel protected by the crowd. You'd feel that you could lose your job. And everyone knows the old cliche, you'll never work in Hollywood again. That's the last thing you want to hear, but that doesn't happen these days because you're protected by the crowd. So it's gone from the shadow into the light, and th that's always a good thing. But you also mentioned cancel culture. Cancel culture is problematic, and I took Disney to task in a Forbes article I wrote uh, regarding their handling of Gina Carano. Whether you believe that she should have been fired, not believe she should have been fired, my point was... And remind us, uh, what she, this is for the Mandalorian? She, it was for was the Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. um, she's conservative. She's an outspoken conservative. And she said some outspoken conservative things. And Disney decided it was time to let her go. Now, again, you can agree, disagree. It doesn't matter. My point of the article was um, the decision was more of a knee-jerk reaction rather than a thoughtful process. And my point was the studios need a more thoughtful documented price uh, process in terms of who they're going to work with, who they're going to fire. It needs to be written down. It needs to be understood so people understand where boundaries are, both inside a company and from those on the outside looking in. You know, it used to be years ago, and this, this is the problem with cancel culture. It used to be years ago that executives, and I'm going to talk about just entertainment, just about anywhere, but it was really egregious behaviors 
that got you fired. You murdered somebody, you theft, you were thrown in jail. There was drug abuse that, you know, you couldn't get on the production set. You knew why someone got fired. Now you can get canceled because of who you voted for in some national election. You can make a, a joke 20 years ago that suddenly somebody finds on YouTube and suddenly you get fired because there's right now a sort of an unforgiving atmosphere. So it would be nice if we lived in a world where if an apology is sincere, if there was personal growth, you know, over the last so many years because of what you did now, then and who you are now, that you can hold on to that job. But right now what's happening is that the studios are reacting to a small segment of the population who's extremely vocal um, to get someone fired, to get somebody canceled. And my personal belief is that that's wrong, that the studio should have a more thoughtful process that they go through and a list, if you will, of what is a opinion so egregious or behavior so egregious that it warrants being canceled. And right now that's not happening. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think a lot of people are running scared now. Comedians are running scared. Co comedians have gone on record saying, I, I can't stand up and tell the jokes because somebody may be so sensitive that I'm gonna get canceled. We live in a very interesting time right now and I think it's unfortunate, but I do think that the pendulum is swinging in the other direction because you have some very noted individuals who are known to be quite liberal on that end, suddenly pushing back and saying, okay, we, we've gone too far. You know, sincere apologies should be worth something. Personal growth should be worth something. We need to move on. So I have a, I have a Los Angeles and California specific question for you now uh, about the entertainment industry. Uh, since you both live in or near LA and Hollywood, I'm assuming, uh, I'm wondering, will, is, will Los Angeles still be the epicenter of the entertainment field? Will Hollywood still be Hollywood as we know it uh, at a time like, you know, as we've just been discussing for the past 50 minutes about, you know, global audiences and shows done in country and just the whole change? What, what uh, is Hollywood going to look like going forward? And, uh, you know, what does that mean for, you know, for us living here? What are, so Gene, you want to lead on this? Sure. I think as long as the major studios are located here, um, this world, this Hollywood, is going to continue to be the substantial, what I'll call the perceptual hub. Uh, because as I said before, 70% of the box office is worldwide. Um, a lot of our production, by the way, is happening in different parts of the world. Uh, if you want a film that's going to do well in, let's say, China, it probably behooves you to have a Chinese member of the cast. It probably behooves you to maybe even shoot some of the scenes in China. It's like, so th there's a world out there that we're partaking in, but Hollywood, I think, is going to continue to be the perceptual hub, <clears throat> excuse me, as long as the studios, as long as the stars still gravitate around this, this center of the world. Henry, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I also want to say that there are multiple entertainment industries centered in L.A. And uh, the porn industry, for example, has continued <laughs> to be based in Los Angeles and has historically been an important training ground for technical people who are going to enter the film and television industry. So there's a reason that's located in 
LA, I think some of the influencer culture is migrating toward LA because these people aspire to go into mass media, even though their current success is. But at the same time, the the force in the other direction is large regional hubs. So I'm doing this interview from Atlanta. I don't know how many times I get to an end of a movie and see a Georgia credit uh, at the end of movies that I never would have pictured being shot in Georgia, but are taking advantage of the buildup of studios that are taking place here in Atlanta. So even in the US, Hollywood doesn't command quite the, the monopoly over production that it once did. And so I think it will be the epicenter to use your terms. I don't think it's going to be the exclusive center. And I think it's gonna be an epicenter in part because of these peripheral industries continuing to cluster here, as you would expect in any other industrial space, the related industries uh, connect and center in one or two locations. All right, so I cannot let you go without getting a recommendation uh, for what to watch. And I'm asking you this uh, on a day when wildfire smoke is, it's not so bad today. It's kind of just a little hazy, but we had a mask mandate uh, come back and it just seems like we, you know, we're not out of this pandemic yet. And it's, you know, optimism is still there, but you know, uh, it's still a long haul. So I, uh, I think, you know, comfort streaming is still something we, we need. I, I know I need. So, um, how about Henry and Jean give me, well, give us a recommendation for what to watch, um, streaming or, you know, theater simultaneously, what have you, uh, that you'd recommend that we watch, uh, that you think would just be a good, good something to watch right now. Well, I'm a sucker for all things Marvel. So uh, Loki, I loved, uh, as well as uh, the the earlier series as as well that Disney has has introduced under the Marvel banner. Uh, Is that Ragnarok? um, Not the one. Not not, not Ragnarok is a different story unrelated to Marvel. Yeah. Okay, sorry. um, (laughs) It's all right. Um, I saw a Black Widow at the Al Capitan. I absolutely loved it. And I love that theater. I love that environment, which is why I go there quite a bit. Um, I intend to see Jungle Cruise because I'm, again, a sucker for all things, you know, theme park related. Okay. Um, I want to see Free Guy. I think I'm probably going to see that in a theater and not wait. I think it's a 45 day wait before it becomes in home uh, because to me, that one is ticket worthy. I want to see what that looks like on the big screen. And <clears throat> excuse me. And I'm also a sucker for the Suicide Squad. So I intend to see the Suicide Squad, whether I watch that one in a theater or streaming eventually when it's on streaming, I'm not sure. Uh, but that's my list. All right. So classic summer, summer blockbusters all the way. Yeah. Yes. I mean, as I share the past passion for Marvel and one thing we haven't talked about so far is the way Disney's use of streaming is connecting and building interest in its future Marvel blockbusters through series like Loki. This is what I call transmedia entertainment. And while Marvel has long had that potential, its failure up to now to really connect TV and film has been noteworthy. And I think we've seen that change with WandaVision forward in terms of the Disney Plus shows. To continue in the blockbuster vein, I'm going to get some fanboys who are angry at this, but I thought that Kevin Smith's new rendition of He-Man and Masters of the Universe is surprisingly good 
whether you are a child who grew up on that, which I was not, I was the parent of a child who grew up watching that series, or you just like good adventure superhero stories, this is a really compelling one. And I love Black Widow and the female-centered action. This has also strong female-centered action that while also rewarding fan lore and fan background. And then to pick up on we talked about diversity earlier, I would throw into the pot We Are Lady Parts, which is on Peacock. Um, we Are Lady Parts is a British series about an all-Muslim, all-female punk rock band. It's a sitcom. And it's exciting at this moment of diversity that we're seeing not simply a single Muslim character added to a show, but a show where there's all kinds of Muslim women featured with diverse backgrounds, political commitments, spiritual commitments, and how they interact with each other. We saw that also um, uh, on Never Have I Ever, which entered its second season this year in terms of in, um, uh, uh, American Asian characters on television. So the point we're at where we're seeing these rich casts telling diverse stories and telling multiple stories are going to really push us forward away from the burden of representation that minority-centered shows have faced up to now, where it's one story, one character, one experience featured. Now we're seeing a lot more than that. And I would recommend all of those things as things you could stream right now that are really worth watching. You know, and I'll just add one more point. How you define new anymore is quite different. Because in the streaming world, uh, my wife and I started watching Yellowstone, and that's been on for years. But suddenly, because it's there and available, it's new to us. So it used to be that new meant something was going to be in a theater, you know, 90 days later, it was going to be on a DVD, and maybe someday down the road, it was something else. But that was old now, because everyone saw it, or a lot of people saw it in the theater. But now in the streaming world, whatever is new is simply what's new to you. Even though it may have been in the streaming world for you know the last five six years, yeah, it, it seems like entertainment. There, it's it's supposed to be there. There's something for everyone, and these days, just based on what you're what you're saying and recommending, it does seem truly like there is more of something for everyone to to watch and enjoy. Yeah, the the studios used to call it you know a four quadrant movie or four quadrant television show. You're getting young and old, um, uh, male and female. Well, it's not four quadrants anymore. It's probably a dozen different quadrants, but there is so much there to partake that people will find something that's right for them because now it's about your entertainment inventory. It's the inventory, which is why an Amazon would buy an, an MGM for the inventory. It's for the content, which suddenly is old, but it's new again for a generation that has not partaken in it. Well, I'll put I'll just put my recommendation up there. Sunset Boulevard. I after I was you know researching the quote up there that I put at the top. I'm going to watch it again. I'm sure it's somewhere on Amazon Prime because uh, even though it was made uh, 60 years ago or so, 1950, uh, it still feels like it has a lot of that entertainment. You know, good, bad, and still to be determined. Um, Gene and Henry, thank you so much for talking with me today about entertainment and where it's going and. Uh, what it looks like. I'm really optimistic because I, I was worried about, uh, you know, uh, LA, but it does seem like, like you said, there's just so much choice and that's, that's fantastic. And it, um, 
I don't know, Hollywood's ever-changing, so it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Uh, my pleasure. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers, This Changes Everything, Episode 20, which was recorded on July 30th, 2021. Thanks to Professors Gene Delvecchio and Henry Jenkins from USC for joining us. Special thanks to our stellar production team, Nate Graham and Caleb Clark, and to podcast listener Cheryl Mather for sending us some financial support. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you like what we're doing and want to keep tabs on what we'll be doing next, you can sign up for our newsletter and be the first to hear about our future efforts and next events. Just go to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.